Good evening and welcome again to our Bible study series, Show Us Your Glory. We are making our way through part three of what will ultimately be seven parts in this series. Um, as always, I want to mention, in case we have anyone new joining us, uh, the notes and all of the previous audio recordings of this series are available at our website, which is new-life-ministries.org. And I would encourage all of us to, if possible, download the notes ahead of time so you can follow along with them as we work through this. A lot of it is just scriptures so that you don't have to be thumbing around in the Bible looking up all the verses, although I can't promise that every verse we look at is going to be in the notes because sometimes um, other things come along the way, but we try to put the basic outline into the notes so that you have it there to follow. Okay, um, we're in a very sad part of this whole study, but it's I think it's very important that we take our time as we work through this as you can see, part three is entitled, Glory Gained and Lost in the Old Testament. And once we finish part three, we're going to start turning our attention to the New Testament and what it has to say about the glory of God. But this part three shows us how God wants to give glory, but he also can take it away. And in the story of Eli and his sons, the record is given in 1 Samuel. Very sad and a very tragic story. And as we mentioned last time, there are both good and bad examples in the scriptures. And no doubt, you will have both good and bad examples around you in your spiritual journey. Both of them are important. The good example should inspire us, motivate us. It's something we want to follow. But in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul also told the Corinthians and all of us Christians that there are bad examples to warn us what not to do. And this is certainly one of those uh, cases. The story of Eli and his sons, very, very sad, very tragic story. And the way it ends is not the way you and I want to end. It ends with the glory of God literally departing from Israel. And we're going to come to that eventually, but we're still looking at some of the things that took place leading up to that. And if I were to give a title to this subsection... It's how to lose the glory of God. Not that we want to do that, but here's how to do it. And we don't want to lose the glory of God, so this is an example of what we should not follow, what we should not do. We saw in 1 Samuel 2 that Eli and his sons were the descendants of Aaron, and thus the priestly line was inherited by their family. Eli and his sons were the priests in Shiloh at this particular time in Israel's history. Young Samuel has been brought there by his mother Hannah. He's there as he's growing up, seeking the Lord. He's actually surrounded by bad examples. Not exactly the best environment to be training up a future prophet. But thus are the ways of the Lord. They're not always how we would uh, think they should be. In the midst of that very dark time in Israel's history, Samuel is growing in grace, he's growing in the Lord, and he's coming to a place where God is revealing himself to Samuel. And we ended last time... In 1 Samuel chapter 3, and I want to read the passage again just to sort of kick off tonight's lesson. 
if you are in the notes, we're backtracking a little bit to page 19 and 1 Samuel 3, verses 1 to 3. It says, The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Now, there, there, this is rich in spiritual meaning, but just looking at the surface here, Samuel has now become old, he's becoming blind, he's losing his vision. Every time we see him in these chapters, he's either sitting or lying down. And another key thing we ended with last time, the lamp of God in the temple, it says, had not yet gone out, indicating that things had reached such a state that even the lamp of God in the temple is about to go out. And one of the responsibilities of the priests was to make sure that that lamp did not go out. And so the picture we have here is... Oh, my wife's correcting me. Apparently I misspoke and said Samuel. We're talking about Eli. Eli has become old, he's blind, and he and his sons have miserably failed in their duties as priests. We saw that his sons were literally committing fornication with the women in the temple. Uh, They were doing all kinds of selfish things, using their position in the ministry for their own advantage. And now a, a word has come from a man of God warning Eli that basically God is saying, enough. You've honored your sons above me. You've trampled on my sacrifice. Basically, you've blasphemed me. And therefore, judgment, heavy judgment, is about to fall on you and your whole household. He's already been warned. His two sons, who were doing all of this wickedness, they're both about to die in the same day. And with all of that as a backdrop, here's Samuel ministering before the Lord. And one other interesting thing, in verse 3, the lamp of God had not yet gone out, Samuel was lying down in the temple where the ark of God was. Eli's in another place. How ironic that Eli is already separated from the ark of God. Samuel is drawing nearer to the ark of God. The ark is going to be the central theme in the final part of this story. We also saw that the word of the Lord was rare, and there were not many visions. Israel, as a nation, is in dangerous spiritual decline, and it's not a very good situation that we ended with last time. Now, let's continue on page 20, if you're following in the notes, jumping down to 1 Samuel 3, verses 11 to 18. As Samuel is there in the temple, next to the ark, God begins to call him, and God begins to speak to young Samuel. And in verse 11 and onwards we read, The Lord said to Samuel, See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears of it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family 
from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made themselves contemptible, and he failed to restrain them. Now let's pause here for a moment. We saw that to his credit, Eli did confront his sons, and he rebuked them for the things that he was doing, but obviously in God's eyes, he didn't do enough. And God's charge against Eli is, you've honored your sons more than me. Somehow, Eli was still showing preference to his sons. He was sort of coddling them, if you will, even though he tried to rebuke them. God's words here are, he failed to restrain them. As the head of the family and as high priest, his job ultimately was to be responsible for anything and everything that took place in the house of God. And so he may not have been committing all the sins and wickedness that his sons were. Nevertheless, God held him responsible and accountable. Verse 13 again. For I told him, Eli, that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made themselves contemptible, and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Samuel lay down in the morning and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision. But Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son. Samuel answered, Here I am. What was it he, the Lord, said to you? Eli asked, Do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, He is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. Several important things happened here. Number one, God confirmed Samuel as a prophet. All that he heard was a confirmation of what God had already spoken to Eli through another man of God. So, indeed, Samuel is now knowing the Lord, hearing his voice, and receiving revelation directly from the Lord. Not good news for Eli. And rather than argue and fight, at least, again to his credit, Eli realizes this is the word of the Lord. And sadly, in verse 18, after hearing Samuel report all that the Lord spoke to him, all he can say is, He is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. So, summarizing this, although Eli may not have committed all of the sins, his sons were committing, God ultimately held Eli responsible for failing to restrain his sons. If spiritual leaders, and I'm talking about the church now, if spiritual leaders in the church fail to correct the so-called sons of Eli that might be in the ministry today, God's glory will quickly withdraw. And we have a very sad example in the New Testament that seems to parallel the depths of depravity that were taking place in Eli's day. And I want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The reference is given in your notes, but we're not given all the 
Bible verses. So I want to turn to 1 Corinthians 5 and have a look at what was happening in one of the churches in Paul's day. These are spirit-filled, tongue-speaking, charismatic, gifted Christians. And yet, here we find something absolutely horrendous was going on in the church, the church that Paul was overseeing. 1 Corinthians 5, from verse 1, um, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Remember, God's charge against Eli is you should have restrained your sons, not just rebuking them and giving them a little lecture. You should have done something to stop this iniquity in my house. Paul's telling the people in the Corinthian church, you're boasting about this. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and put out of the church the man who's doing this? Verse 3, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. Let's take another pause. How often and how readily the sinners will quote for us Matthew 7, judge not. Oh, you're not supposed to judge anybody or anything. No, wrong, no. Paul was judging this situation. He says, I've already passed judgment on the one who did this. This is wrong. Fornication, immorality, and things of that nature in the church are wrong. I've passed judgment already on it. I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. Verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the flesh, the sinful nature, may be destroyed, and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Some people might be hearing this for the first time and saying, Are you kidding me? That's in the New Testament? Yes, sir, it is. Hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and ultimately his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. And here's why such extreme measures needed to be taken in the Corinthian church and here's why they needed to have been taken in Eli's day, and when they weren't, it's why the glory of God departs. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. Paul uses the metaphor of yeast in connection with the Passover. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Well, it was known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, bread without leaven or yeast. The Israelites had to get rid of all yeast from their houses. And the yeast represents sin. Just a little pinch of yeast can work through the whole mass of dough and leaven it. It causes it to puff up, to rise because of the yeast working in every part of the dough. 
Paul says, if you don't get rid of this sin, it's going to keep spreading like a cancer or a gangrene, and it's going to rot the whole church. Get rid of the old yeast. And remember, in the case of Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's two sons, we read there in 1 Samuel, all Israel knew what they were doing. This had corrupted the whole community. And the fact that everybody in Israel knew about it, and they saw that Eli was not doing anything to stop it or to restrain it, it was corrupting the whole community. And like yeast, it was going to spread throughout the camp and ruin the whole community. Let's keep reading here in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. Pausing for a second, your co-workers, your boss, your teacher at school, they may be uh, God knows what. They may be living in adultery. They may be swindlers, idol worshipers. They, they, don't, they may not be Christians. Paul's not saying you need to avoid all people. He's going to clarify it. Verse 11, I am now writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother. These are so-called Christians in the church, call themselves brothers, but are sexually immoral or greedy, idolaters, slanderers, drunkards, or swindlers. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Now this sounds very harsh, and you may think, wow, this Paul, he's a, he's a tough dude. He was a mean character. No, Paul loved the church, just as Christ loves the church. And Paul, like Christ, knows if we allow these things to go unchecked in the church, it'll spoil the whole church. It'll corrupt the whole worshiping community. And so this is the issue with Eli and his sons. He failed to restrain them. Therefore, not only is Eli and his sons together are they all going to die in the same day? But God has pronounced judgment forever on their family. God is really ticked off. This really grieved the Lord. And we saw last time, the key here centers around one word, glory. He failed to honor God, the word kabod, glory. You did not give me the glory I deserve. You gave more glory to your sons than you did to me. Therefore, God is going to now withdraw his glory from Israel. Now, I'm trying to stay on track here, but I, I keep hearing the Lord speaking to my spirit. We in the church who are involved in leadership and oversight, we need to pay very close attention to this story. Because like Eli, we may say, well, I'm not doing anything wrong. But God is saying, yeah, but you're in charge. You're responsible for the things that you know about that are happening on your watch. What are you doing about it? And let me repeat this statement again. When spiritual leaders fail to correct the sons of Eli in the church, God's glory will quickly withdraw. I don't care 
how much money they tithe. I don't care how wealthy a donor he or she may be. God is looking very carefully to see, are we going to honor him, or are we going to honor people first? Let's not make the same mistake Eli made. When we're in a position of responsibility, we need to lovingly confront individuals who are not walking right and call them to repentance, teach them the right way. And Jesus gave a formula, if I can use that word, in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17, sort of a step-by-step process that we walk through when we're in covenant with other believers. This is why it's important that we be joined to a local body of believers. I don't want to get off track tonight, but that's why it's wrong to say, oh, I don't belong to any church, I just watch TV and I'm a member of the body of Christ. Great, but who are you accountable to? Who are you walking in covenant with? Otherwise, these verses that Jesus spoke are meaningless. Listen carefully. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. Don't gossip about it. Don't get on the phone about it. Go to him, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. End of story. But if he will not listen to you, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If that works, praise God. End of story. But, stage three, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, we've now gone as a group, and this individual is still unrepentant. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Well, what church? The whole body of Christ? No. Tell it to that local covenant group, that local congregation. Tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, his church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. In other words, as Paul said in Corinthians 5, put him out until he's ready to repent and get his life right. God's judgment on Eli's entire house was certain now. There's no turning back. God is basically saying, that's it. I am through I'm done. Now, a few other things happen before Eli and his sons do indeed all die in the same day. Moving a little further in the story, 1 Samuel 4. By no coincidence, Israel now finds itself in conflict. They're at war with the Philistines. This is often the case in the Old Testament when God's favor is starting to lift off of Israel. He allows adversaries, he allows enemies to get stirred up and to come against them. Let's read about it. 1 Samuel 4, 1-4. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Clearly, he's a prophet now. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated. Notice those words. As the battle spread, Israel was defeated. 
by the Philistines. Not a good sign. If God was with them, that should not have happened. Something's happening now. The, the Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Pause. Interesting, the question that they ask. They immediately start thinking about the Lord. Because they knew. If God were with us, we should have won this battle. What is going on with the Lord here? There must be some spiritual reason why we're losing our battles. Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today? Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Their question, back again in verse 3, their question why did the Lord bring this defeat upon us? In other words, why is this happening? They answer their own question. Whoops! We don't have the ark with us. We left it back in Shiloh. The ark was always to go in front of them whenever they went into battle. We'll, we'll look at that scripture in a minute, but whenever they set out, the ark of the Lord was out in front, and the, the priests were supposed to blow trumpets and shout, Rise up, O Lord, may your enemies be scattered, and may your foes flee before you. But here they are, going into battle with no ark. It's almost like an army going out on the battlefield, and after they're getting whipped by the enemy, they go, uh-oh, we forgot to bring our guns. We forgot our tanks. We better go get our weapons. A little bit late now, guys. Look very carefully, and I've highlighted some of this in your notes for you. Look very carefully at their statement in verse 3. Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, so that it, emphasis on it, may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. Even though they knew they were in trouble, and God has basically forsaken them, his presence has departed from them, for them, the ark has just become an it. It's sort of a magic charm. Maybe if we wave this charm around out on the battlefield, it will save us. So, they bring the ark, and here come Eli's two sons, fulfilling their priestly duty, carrying the ark of the covenant. couple of problems. Number one, the elders realize... God is no longer with us. We better fetch the ark. Maybe it's not too late. Maybe God's presence will manifest again and something magical will happen out here on the battlefield. Maybe it will save us. Well, as I mentioned, in Numbers 10, verses 33 to 36... 
this was what they were supposed to do whenever they went into battle or whenever they journeyed somewhere. Numbers 10, 33 to 36. So they set out from the mountain of the Lord and traveled for three days. The ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them during those three days to find them a place to rest. Ark of the Covenant was always supposed to be in front. They've left it completely behind. Verse 34. The cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Rise up, O Lord. May your enemies be scattered. May your foes flee before you. Whenever it came to rest, he said, Return, O Lord to the countless thousands of Israel. So, putting all this together, there's been dangerous spiritual decline and backsliding that's been accumulating for a period of time now. Gross sin in the priesthood. Eli has failed to check that sin. God is now warning judgment on Eli and his whole family, and now the whole nation is coming under judgment. God has forsaken them on the battlefield. They're being badly beaten by their enemies, the Philistines. As sort of a last-ditch effort, they try to fetch the ark, hoping, hoping that the ark is going to work some magic. But it doesn't. First Samuel 4, reading on from verse 5 to 10. When the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Wait a minute. Not so fast. Maybe it's going to work. Maybe the, the ark, it, will save us. Such a great shout that the ground shook. Verse 6, Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, What's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp, they said. We're in trouble. Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? You know, the Philistines seem to have a little bit more spiritual discernment than the Israelites. They knew what this ark represented. It represented, in their words, mighty gods. The mighty gods who had struck down the Egyptians. Well, they almost got it right. Mighty God. Who will deliver us? from the hand of these mighty gods. They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the desert. Instead, verse 9, they say, Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. You know, with all the shouting, the ground shaking, it, meaning the ark, it has now been brought into the battle, it didn't save them. Why? Because God did not show up. It showed up, but God did not. They were not looking for the God of the ark, the God of the covenant, the God who could save them. And you know, we're going to talk about this a lot more later on after we finish looking at the glory of God in the New Testament. But, you know, we can shout and holler and 
pound the ground and try every formula in the book, it's not going to bring the presence of God and the glory down in our church services. God is waiting for us to get our hearts right. And when there's this kind of iniquity and wickedness growing in the camp as it was in Eli's day, you can shout and holler all you want. God's glory is going to depart. And maybe they thought the louder they shouted, the bigger victory it was going to bring. No, not the case. Now, 30,000 Israelites have died on the battlefield in one single day. God does not have to show up because we shout or follow some formula. God wants to manifest his glory if and when and only when he finds people with God-honoring hearts. Eli and his sons had been charged by God himself as no longer being God-honorers. We must make sure in our heart of hearts that we want to honor and glorify God, putting God above everything else, honoring the Lord above anything and everything. That, if you want to use the word, is the formula that works. God is looking for sincere, God-honoring hearts. Now, moving a little further along, we come to the sad and tragic ending to this whole story. The ark, the very symbol of God's presence and glory, is going to be captured by the Philistines. It was humiliating enough that more than 30,000 had been put to death on the battlefield in a terrible defeat, but it gets worse. 1 Samuel 4, from 11 to 15. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Word of the Lord fulfilled. God told Eli that was going to happen. That same day, a Benjamite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh, his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair. We've talked about this. Every time we see Eli, he's sitting or lying down. Now, granted, by this time he's a very old man, but this seems to have been going on for a long time. Poor old Eli, blind, fat, sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching. Because his heart feared, not for his sons, he had been warned about the sons, and he's about to get news about them, but that's not what it says. He sat by the side of the road watching because his heart feared for the ark of God. When the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, What is the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old, and whose eyes were set so that he could not see. He's not completely blind, old, sitting, waiting for some news, specifically fearing some bad news about the ark. What a sad picture. Really a sad picture. He seemed to know that the hour of judgment has arrived. And the next verses will certainly confirm that. 16 to 18. He told Eli, I have just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. Eli asked, What happened, my son? 
The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines, and the army has suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. Now, no doubt the news of his sons would have saddened his heart. But notice very clearly the next verse. When he mentioned the ark of God, doesn't say anything about the sons, when he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate, his neck was broken, and he died. And he was an old man and heavy. He had led Israel 40 years. When he got the news that the ark of God had been captured, that was it. He fell off his chair and instantly died of a broken neck. Why was the news of the ark so distressing to Eli? And we have to do a little bit of background here, because for you and for me, it might be hard to comprehend why this was such a big deal. Why was Eli so concerned about the ark, and when he heard that it had been captured, why was it the end for him? Well, let's look at a couple of things concerning the ark. First of all, it was called the Ark of the Covenant. It was the symbol representing God's covenant relationship with Israel. This relationship between Israel and God, it wasn't just some sort of a casual friendship. It was a covenant relationship. Something like marriage, a covenant relationship. The ark was the symbol of that covenant between God and his people. In Exodus 25-22, God had told them it was there between the cherubim on top of the ark, there I will meet with you. So this was the place of fellowship with God's presence, there at the ark. The ark represented God's throne, Psalm 99.1, and it represented his glory, Hebrews 9, verse 5. The throne of God, the covenant of God, the glory of God, the fellowship in God's presence, all those things are represented by the ark. So, when it's captured, what that means is you've lost all those things. Covenant lost, being able to meet with the Lord in his presence, lost. God's glory, lost. A couple of other things about the ark we learn a little further on in the story. The ark of God, after the Philistines captured it, it brought death and heavy judgment on the Philistines and on their false gods. It was such a scary thing that they finally were scrambling, how do we get rid of this thing? we got to get this ark out of here. It's killing us. It's smiting us with cancer and disease and judgment. People are dying. we got to get rid of this ark. A little further along, we'll find people died just when they looked inside the ark. This was an awesome thing, to get anywhere near the ark, let alone for it to be captured. People died when they touched it. When they, when they touched it, when they looked inside of it, people died. This was a very, very powerful symbol representing God's awesome power, his glory, his presence. No wonder it was sad news 
when Eli heard, the ark has been captured. One more piece to the story, and this is where we'll have to conclude. 1 Samuel 4, verses 19 to 22. Eli's two sons, remember, Hophni, Phinehas, both dead. Eli, now dead. It so happens that the wife of Phinehas, one of Eli's daughters-in-law, is pregnant and nearing the time of delivery. 1 Samuel 4.19 His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured, notice the order here. First, again, news that the ark of God had been captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead. I think the order is important. First in the list, most distressing of all the news, as tragic as it was to be losing both her father-in-law and her husband in one day, is the news of the ark. When she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured, she went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by her labor pains. Verse 20, as she was dying, the women attending her said, Don't despair, you have given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured. Remember the Hebrew word for glory is kabod. This child is named Ichabod, glory departed. The glory of God that we've been talking about so much, they realized that day it left. It left the nation. The glory of God departed from Israel. Now, if the glory of God means nothing to you, that's no big deal. But if you understand and have been following along with us in this study, the, the key centrality of God's glory, this was a very, very big deal, what just happened. And imagine giving a name like this to your son. Glory departed. The day you were born will go down in history as one of the most infamous days in Israel. The ark was captured. Furthermore, God's presence and God's glory lifted off of the nation. God help us to never become an Ichabod. God help our churches not to become Ichabod churches, where we shout and holler and have all kinds of rituals and traditions, but no glory. That's why this Bible study, for me, is so very, very important. It's not just a Bible study. It's my heart cry. Lord, show us your glory. God, Take not your Holy Spirit from us. Let not your presence depart from us. Lord, in the church, we need your glory more than anything. We don't need fancy carpet, fancy altars, fancy smoke and light shows and, and stained glass windows and celebrity uh, preachers. We need the glory of God in the church. Please don't depart from us. The birth of Ichabod 
was a turning point for Israel. It would actually take many years until the time of King David to bring the glory back into Jerusalem when they would finally welcome the Ark of God back into the streets of Jerusalem with singing and dancing and rejoicing. But this is the beginning of a very sad, very dark uh, number of years in Israel's history. The defeat on the battlefield was bad enough, but losing God, literally losing God and his presence that day was far more tragic. I'm going to wait until next time to tie up this third part because I don't want to rush through it. We've finished with the story, but we have a number of loose ends to tie up in our next session, and then, thank God, we'll be able to change gears and move into the New Testament and talk about the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But remember, this story of Eli and his sons, I would strongly recommend you reading these opening four or five chapters of 1 Samuel to feel the weight of what just happened here. And remember Paul's words. These examples are written down for us to warn us not to repeat what they did. It's a stern and a very heavy warning to all of us that, yes, God wants his glory, his presence to be manifested in our lives, in our churches, when two or three gather together, he says he'll be there in our midst. He wants to manifest his presence. But his glory and his presence will depart when this kind of sin is allowed to go on unchecked. And the story in 1 Corinthians 5 should also be a strong warning to us that a little leaven can leaven the whole lump. And God is calling us to long for his glory, want his presence, long for fellowship with him there at the ark between the cherubim. He wants us to have all that, but he also wants us to have a heart that honors God first and foremost, above and besides anything and everything else. Let's close in prayer tonight. Oh, Father God, God of glory, the glory of Israel, Lord, we humble ourselves under your mighty hand tonight as we have finished this very sobering story in Israel's history. The Israel with whom you had covenanted, the Israel upon whom you had demonstrated and poured out your glory, your presence in a mighty way, visibly demonstrating your glory with signs and wonders, with fire and clouds of glory, how you had manifested yourself, how you had visited this nation. But Lord, now at this point in their history, your glory is departing from them because of the wickedness, the sin, the pride, the lack of honor and glory being given to you. Lord, let us learn from this lesson. Let us learn from this sobering story. Help us to humble ourselves under your mighty hand, determined to honor and to glorify you first and foremost in our lives. Lord, as King David would later sing in his time of repentance, God create in us a clean heart, renew a right spirit within us, cast us not away from your presence, take not your Holy Spirit, take not your glory from us. It's your presence that we long for. It's your glory that we want to dwell in. It's your glory that we want to see and to enjoy. 
And God, as we begin next time to turn our attention to the new covenant, Lord, what good news you're going to bring to us that glory is available in the face of Jesus Christ. The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Lord, show us your glory. Fill us with your glory. Make your church a glorious church in these final days as we await your return in glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.